0: Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. If you're using the Bible there in the seat backs in front of you, you can find it on page 807. Matthew chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please pray with me. Well, Father, we recognize that you are the giver of all good gifts. And we recognize that we live in a world that has no interest in seeing the glory of this child. And even in our flesh, so much resistance to seeing the beauty and the wonder and the importance of this child. And so we ask that you would remove every obstacle to seeing, every obstacle to believing that this is the Christ. The Son of God in the flesh, that you sent him into the world to live, to die, to be raised for the salvation of your people. And we pray that you would soften our hearts in such a way that would lead us to adore him, to rejoice exceedingly in him, to be unimpressed with the things of this world that are passing away, and to be deeply impressed. With this, our Savior, our King, our God, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, political elections, we've certainly learned, can be very polarizing. People either love the president or hate the president or just say ho-hum and go back to bed. No matter what the president. But no matter how strong we think this polarizing could be in our day, we must never forget that there has never been a more polarizing ascendancy to any throne across human history than this one in Matthew 2. Jesus is the most polarizing ruler in the history of the world, and he always will be. That pattern has carried on to this day. In 2 Samuel 7:16, the Lord said to David, king of Israel, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, someone from David's line would arise and reign over God's people forever. And a thousand years had elapsed between that promise and Matthew 2. The throne went to Solomon, then it got split to go to Rehoboam in the south and Judah, and Jeroboam in the north and Israel, and then king after king to follow, just as we learned from the genealogy of Matthew 1. Some kings were faithful, others were faithless. And when Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in 587, he was deposed and taken in chains to Babylon. That was the last king of Judah almost 600 years before Matthew 2. 600 years they've been waiting. The United States has been around for half of that time. What it means is the events of Matthew 1 and 2 are a big deal, a massive moment in the history of the world. And God doesn't want us to miss it. That the promised king has come, conceived of the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, born of a virgin in the very town declared in the Old Testament, the very town that God said, this is where the Messiah will be born. And in this passage, we're going to see three primary responses to his coming. One person's going to conspire to kill him. A great many people will do nothing. And just a handful will search him out and worship him. So this is a passage of Scripture that drives us to one big truth and one critical question. The big truth is the eternal promised King and Christ has come. It's what we shouldn't miss, what this passage is aiming to show us, just as God promised. But then secondly is the question, will you bow up or bow out or bow down? Those are the three responses we see. And so what we'll do is we'll just walk verse by verse through the story before settling in on those three possible responses. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and this happens at least several months after his birth, maybe over a year after his birth, which is one reason why when Herod finally targets him later in the chapter, he's going to go after all boys born in Bethlehem in the last two years. So this is a number of months after Jesus is born, maybe over a year. And he's born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And Scripture is careful to say of Judea, as opposed to Bethlehem of Galilee. There is another Bethlehem in Galilee, and Matthew wants us to know that's not where he was born. This is Judea. The place is important. Jesus hails from the house of David in the city of David. as we'll see, according to Old Testament prophecy. And in the days of Herod the king, this refers to Herod the Great, who's an Edomite, probably raised with a lot of Jewish training and appointed king of the Jews and king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 39 BC. So for over three decades, he has reigned in this region as the king, the king of the Jews, the king of Judea. After being appointed, there was about a three-year war where he had to fight for it and emerged from those wars victorious. So now, when Jesus is born, we're over three decades into his reign. And this third decade is by far his most violent. And behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. And these wise men, or magi, were either astrologers or magicians or scholars or some mix of all of that. Those who studied stars, those who studied prophetic writings, coming from the east, probably from Babylonia, where they would have come into contact with Old Testament scripture there because of all the exiles of Israel that were there with scripture. Modern Iraq, Babylonia. We don't know how many came. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe five, maybe seven. They weren't kings. They weren't from the Orient. There probably weren't three. Three. So, feel free to sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient. Just know you're singing lies. (laughs) Still a great song. But what we're meant to notice, first and foremost, from this passage is the question that they bring. Verse 2 Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They want to find this special child who is interestingly born a king. That's unusual. Most babies are born while their fathers are still alive, and so to be born a king is very rare. Joseph, who also descends from David, isn't a king, yet Jesus is born a king, and not just any king, king of the Jews. And this, as we will see, will cause a real stir because Herod already held himself out to be such a king, to bear that very title. And the tension's only going to build with what they say next. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In other words, they saw some star like phenomenon in the sky that compelled them to Jerusalem. And that phrase, his star, is a reference to Numbers 24 17. And in that passage, Balaam, another wise man from the east, is hired by Balak, the king of Moab, if you remember, to come and curse the people of Israel while they're in the plains of Moab. And the Lord intervenes. And rather than Balaam cursing Israel, he's going to bless them. And in the fourth and final oracle that Balaam delivers, look at what he was compelled to say. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. So almost 14 centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord is going to stir and move this false prophet to speak of a star that's going to rise, that's corresponding to a scepter that is rising out of Israel. And so the Magi were somehow familiar with those words. And then they see some star-like phenomenon appearing in the sky and are given the ability to comprehend what that meant, to put those pieces together. Which then prompts them to travel to the land of Jacob, to the land of Israel, in search of this scepter, this king who would help his people. And if they shared Numbers 24 with Herod, then that would have really alarmed him. Because part of the scepter rising, we just read in Numbers 24, 18, is that Edom shall be dispossessed. Remember, Herod is an Edomite. And they came, notice, to worship him to proscuneo. This sometimes means pay homage, but it usually signifies, especially in the book of Matthew, the kind of honor that you would give to deity, worship. This is what Satan demanded from Jesus during the temptation of Matthew 4.19. This is what Jesus responds to Satan and says that only God deserves that. This is the worship that the disciples will give to Jesus in Matthew 28 after his resurrection. And so magi come from the east to find him and to worship him. A king of the Jews who deserves and garners worship from Gentiles. A human-born king who deserves worship. And So they know enough to bring them to Jerusalem. But not enough to get him to Bethlehem. So they start asking around and somehow arrive there with Herod asking questions. Verse 3, and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And not simply Herod, Matthew is careful to point out, but Herod the king, the one who viewed himself as the true king of the Jews, the one who by this time had killed a lot of people, even family, to maintain his power. Herod the Great had ten wives, one of whom he killed, three sons he killed, a brother-in-law he killed, a grandfather-in-law he killed, many other enemies just to hold on to power. The king who wanted the worship for himself. The King Herod who who curried all kinds of favor with the people of Jerusalem in Israel through his many building projects, especially across the city. He rebuilt their walls. He built their city. He built an amphitheater. He built a stadium, a theater, a fortress, a palace. Just poured so much into this community, into this city, and probably his greatest achievement is the expanding of the temple complex. One of his goals was to build a temple, to expand a temple that outdid the glory of Solomon's temple. So he took the second temple and just added much onto it, improved the structures. So though the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, they don't really like him that much, but they really appreciated what he did for them, what he did for the nation, the status he gave them, the glory he gave them, the buildings he gave them, the economy he gave them, the standing he gave them. That's why, verse 3, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Not pleased, not excited, not glad, but troubled. For Herod, a threat to power. For Jerusalem, a threat to stability. For Herod, a threat to glory. For religious leaders, a threat to their ease and their comfort and their wealth and their status. So here, these magi from the east, Gentiles, are the only ones who think this is a good thing, are the only ones who see this as a blessing. That's why Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes to learn where, notice what he calls him, the Christ Christ. The Messiah is to be born. He knows who this is about. Verse 5, And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here the chief priests and the scribes are quoting loosely from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, they include most of Micah 5.2, and then they skip the end of Micah 5.2, and then they quote a little from Matthew or Micah 5.4. They t- tell Herod that, okay, this prophet is supposed to arise, this promised king, and he was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, a small town that is about to have significant importance. But then they skip over the last line of Micah 5.2 to summarize Micah 5.4, Who will shepherd my people Israel? You know what line they skipped over they failed to mention? The one that says, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That is, Micah 5 actually says of Bethlehem, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The chief priests and scribes fail to mention that part, which is not simply an allusion to Jesus descending from David, but to this child pre-existing David. The Hebrew word Olam is usually translated everlasting or forever, and that's the word that Micah 5:2 uses. A ruler shall come forth from Israel, who comes from everlasting days, who doesn't have a beginning. The chief priests and scribes conveniently leave that part out. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Just like Satan, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning masquerading as an angel of light, Herod pretends loyalty, pretends future devotion to this new king all the while planning to kill him, a fake king offering fake honor to a true king. So just as Herod killed others who would compete with him for this throne, he notice the word secretly calls together the wise men, secretly plots, secretly schemes to wipe Jesus out. Because in his heart there's now this clash of kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom comes and Herod's kingdom is threatened. Verse 9, and after listening to the king they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the Magi went their way in search of this glorious king. And then this miraculous star leads them to the house where Jesus and his family remain. And do you notice what's missing? There's no chief priests, no scribes, no people coming out of Jerusalem, no people coming from the surrounding land of Israel to greet their king, their Messiah, their Christ that's been announced, proclaimed, declared, even his location known, nobody but these Gentiles go, which is a prelude to his life and his ministry to come. Some of you know the story of Luke 17, where Jesus is going to heal 10 lepers, and they're going to be healed as they're walking away from him. And one of the 10 comes back to give him honor, and it's a Samaritan. And Jesus then says in Luke 17, 17, Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That's why these Magi are going to be typical as the Gospels unfold of how the nation of Israel is going to receive their king and how Gentiles is who he's actually going to go to eventually. And when they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, a kind of joyfulness that defies words. That's what Matthew's wanting us to see. And that phrase, great joy, megascara, is the same phrase that the angels are going to use to announce the news of Christ being born to the shepherds in Luke 2. They're going to say, we have for you good news of great joy. Same word. It's the same phrase that's going to describe the response of the disciples to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, eight eight. And again in Luke 24, 52. So I think that helps us understand what is meant in verse 11 by the words, they fell down and worshiped him. This was not mere homage that you pay to a mere earthly king, but the kind of worship you give a divine king. Notice how they walk past, well, Joseph, we don't even know where he is. We assume he's in the house, he's not even mentioned. He's there. They walk right past him. They see Mary, walk right past her, straight to the child, and they fall down before him and they worship him. There's no angels there to stop him. Mary doesn't stop him. Joseph doesn't stop him. Nothing is wrong, in other words, with what's going on. Later in Scripture, when you see people bow down before Peter, he says, stand up. I'm just a man. When you see people bow down before angels, they say, get up, I'm just a messenger. But here they bow down and they worship Him, and they bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which is not necessarily symbolic of what's going to come in the life of Christ, but more fulfilling Old Testament types and prophecies of what would be true of the coming Christ. You may know the story in the Old Testament, they follow in the footsteps of another person who came from the east to give honor to a king of Israel. 1 Kings 10.1, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And as Jesus will say later in Matthew about himself, someone greater than Solomon is here. That the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up and judge this generation that didn't receive their king. Because even the Queen of Sheba came from a far land to give honor to Solomon. And someone greater than Solomon is here. So Old Testament Scripture records these shadows, these types to be fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ, these themes that thread through the Bible to help us see the hand of the Lord guiding redemptive history to this person, centering human history, centering redemptive history on this person. Another striking example, we heard Cassie read it this morning from Isaiah 60, verse 1, where the prophet says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together, they come to you Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So here, these magi come to Jerusalem bearing gold, frankincense, myrrh, with good news. You, your king's been born. We saw his star, just like Numbers 24 said, and we followed it to hear where is he? Everybody comes together. Well, Micah says in Bethlehem of Judea. Everybody's putting their heads together to discern okay, then he's there, he's been born. The good news that the light has come, that the Redeemer has entered the world, that the everlasting King and Messiah is there. What a day. What a moment. No one goes but these Gentiles. The Son of God is taken on flesh, and the body he receives as a baby will grow and becomes a substitute for his people, an atonement for his people, things that even the Magi don't see at the time. They're just coming and giving glory to this newborn king, giving honor to this child, knowing, okay, this is some promised child, this Messiah, this Christ from God. Not knowing that he would even grow up to die on a cross as atonement for the sins of his people, that he would absorb the wrath of God by his shed blood, that on the third day he would be raised for the salvation of his people. None of them know that's coming. Jesus will die, but not today, which is why we get verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They've learned enough to fear God and not men. They've seen enough to honor the king that comes from old over the king whose life is a mist, here today, gone tomorrow. Though Herod doesn't know it, he's within a very short time of his own death. He's going to die in 4 BC. It's coming. So they're more swayed by the words of God than the words of men. Their eyes have seen this king, this promised Christ, and their course has changed. The eternal promised king and Christ has come, just as God's word said he would. And it leaves us with the question, what will you do with him? What will I do with him? Will you bow up in anger? Will you bow out in apathy? Or will you bow down in adoration? Those are the three responses that we see in the text, the three sort of points of application that we can take from the text. Number one, just bowing up in anger. That Herod trembles with hostility, not humility. He seeks first his own kingdom and his righteousness, not the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. He doesn't see Jesus as a blessing, but as a danger. He doesn't see Jesus as worthy of glory and honor and dominion, but a threat to his own. So I want to ask you this morning, is that you? Do you see Christ as a blessing or a threat? Is he worthy of your worship or a threat to the worship you desire? Are you here this morning and still fighting him? Is your little kingdom at war with his kingdom? And what we're meant to see in Scripture is, friend, that it will not end well for you, just as it didn't end well for Herod. Because this king who grew, who lived righteously, who died on the cross, who rose on the third day, who appeared to his disciples, who reconciled his people to God the Father, and then ascended. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come back again, but not in respect to sin, but to judge. And so the gospel just invites you, even this morning, repent, believe, Look at this King Jesus, read the rest of Matthew, and trust in everything that it declares about him. Bowing up in anger, that's one response we see. Or secondly, just bowing out in apathy. This could be one of the saddest parts of the text, that the entire city of Jerusalem has heard the good news that their long-awaited King, their Messiah, has been born, All these chief priests, all these scribes, they've heard the good news. They've even announced the location of where he is. And they just exit stage left. They just go back to their safe, comfortable, worldly form of religion that cares far more about cultural relevance than the glory of God. They'd rather stay cozy with earthly political power then risk everything they have for Christ, everything they have to go worship this Savior. Of course, apathy, you'll know, never stays apathy. It either escalates into anger and rage, or it gets confronted and transformed into adoration. But it never stays apathy. Because you all know that if we read on in Matthew, this king will grow up. And he will show up in Jerusalem again. The city will see him face to face. They will hear his teaching. They will see his works. And then they will slaughter him. John 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. In chapter 2, we have no king but Herod. Later on, we have no king but Caesar. Same song, new verse. Of course, it's God who's writing the story. This wasn't about God's enemies prevailing upon Him and getting their way. Scripture teaches that it was the Father who gave up His Son to be killed. It was Jesus who laid down His life at the cross to be sacrificed. Jerusalem was the instrument. Caesar was the instrument. Because of all of our sin, He had to go there. So even as we see the key players in this story and these events Behind it all, we see God authoring it, God guiding it. Desire to appease the world will always produce apathy toward Jesus. You ever notice that? The more we want to please the world, appease the world, fit into the world, the more apathetic you become about Jesus. And eventually that turns to rage. Because eventually Jesus will ask you to give up something you don't want to give up. To sacrifice something you don't want to lose. And so we see with Herod that craving for human approval will always produce apathy toward Christ and then being ashamed of Christ. Love for sin will make us blasé toward Jesus, ho-hum, and then eventually we will scorn him. And so whether this morning you're angry at Jesus or apathetic about Jesus, your real need is the same. Just for your eyes to be open to who he is, for your heart to be softened to turn and trust in him, for you to bow and worship him, for you to surrender faith to him. This one who's lived, died, been raised, and now offers to you salvation in his name. Pray for that, even now, so that whatever anger is there can be turned to adoration. Whatever apathy is there can be turned to adoration, which is what I pray has happened for most of us. Number three, just bowing down in adoration. The Magi from the East, by God's grace alone, they see and they comprehend the signs of Christ's coming. And then they're moved to seek and to worship him. They come a long way, probably 800 miles or more on foot to find him and to worship him. We're meant to take our cues from them. They rejoice in him, verse 10, exceedingly with great joy. And that, praise God, in Christ, is our response as well. That's why we come here. That's why we sing the hymns that we sing. That's why we rejoice the way that we rejoice because the spirit of God has given us a new heart, open our eyes to see and comprehend who he is and what he's done. This is what we feel about Christ, what we want to feed in our hearts toward Christ. So I think it's worth asking ourselves this morning, okay, what feeds my adoration for Jesus? What feeds my affection for him? What builds it up? What stirs me to sing, to rejoice with exceeding joy? Because that is what's confusing to the world. That's one of the things that God will use for others to stir others to ask you questions about why you have that joy. Because there remains a little Herod in all of us. I know I feel it. My kingdom come, my will be done. That's a hard desire to kill. That's how we all came into the world. That's the very thing that when the Spirit of God gave us a new heart, when our eyes were opened to Christ, when we put our faith in Him, our kingdom got turned upside down and a new king entered. God the Father, Colossians 1, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because we all have to admit that our little kingdoms, no matter how much we love them, they're very dark. They're very lonely. They don't get us anywhere. Now, we, we may Christianize it as much as we want. Jesus may be like our favorite person in the throne room, like our favorite little butler. We've got verses on the wall. There's Christian music playing. But we're sitting on the throne. Or he may be our favorite planet in the solar system, like we'll give him Jupiter, like the biggest one, but we're the sun that everything revolves around. And we all know and have experienced that when it's our kingdom come, our will be done, it's a dark place. It's a lonely place. And so the good news is God the Father has delivered us from that domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Like Herod, we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1.21. But Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why now we gladly surrender. That's why now we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Because there also remains a little Jerusalem in all of us. Apathy is hard to kill. Like Jerusalem, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what the rest of the book of Matthew is to go on to show us has happened, and for all whose faith is in Christ. But here at this point in the story, Matthew's wanting us to see, yeah, the King of kings has come, born precisely where God said he would be born, And the rest of Matthew will explain that he will grow up. He will live a sinless life. He will live a righteous life that we couldn't. He would die in our place to pay for sin. He would raise from the dead for our salvation. And the salvation of all who turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus will always be the most polarizing king and ruler across the history of the world. We see it here in Matthew 2. Some will rise to kill him, and still do. Others will just bow out, stage left, in apathy, and most still do. But a few, set apart by grace, chosen by God, eyes opened to hear the word, to believe the word, to be drawn by the word to the King of Kings, to see who he is, to see even then what he is where he's come from. But how much more for us who now look back through the rest of Scripture, look back through the cross, really know who he is, really know what he has accomplished so that now him being the most polarizing king across the history of the world, whether driving people to anger and apathy or to adoration, praise God that we can be those who are driven to adoration because when he comes again, When he established his kingdom once and for all upon the earth, all those who refuse to adore him will be set apart and condemned to hell. All those who have been humbled to worship and to believe and to trust and follow him will be set apart for eternal glory. It does not get more polarizing than that. And that's the king that we're reading about. We can enjoy him. We can glory in him as our redeemer. We can worship him in spirit and truth. We can turn from every sin every day and cling to Jesus, knowing he never lets us go. We can lose cultural comfort. We can lose political power. We can lose status in the world. We can lose standing and not mind it one bit because we've been given a joy that is an exceeding joy. We can rejoice with something the world can't fathom. We can surrender our little kingdoms, which will soon pass away anyway, in order to inherit this kingdom of this beloved Son, the kingdom that comes from everlasting, the kingdom that will go to everlasting. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do ask that these words from Matthew 2 would not fall on deaf ears, that every heart would hear and believe, that every heart would hear and bow, that every heart would come and adore God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ who is King that has come and been born. This one who has died in our place, this one who has been raised for our salvation, this one who has ascended and is even now seated at your right hand, this one who will come back and all will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we pray that you would enable us to declare that and sing that and believe that And live that even now. In his name we pray. Amen.